The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Monday, September 12th, and a short highlight clip of the most actionable insights from the podcast was released to premium subscribers that same day. This was a very short clip containing some timely predictions from the guest. This is just one of many benefits that you receive as a premium subscriber. Now with our new prices, we will be recording podcasts every week with a guest and putting out the highlight clip the day of recording. The following day, what you'll get is the full podcast episode without ads or announcements. Everybody else, non-paying subscribers, has to wait a couple more days, and then they will have to deal with all of these annoying ads or announcements. I mentioned that prices are increasing, but you can still lock in at a low rate. If you go to the website, contrarianpod dot substack dot com slash old rate i will put that in the show notes as well and this will be available just for you and for a limited time everything else all other information there are additional benefits to being a premium subscriber that is all laid out on the website contrarianpod.substack.com you can also of course access the website mentioned at the top contrarian.supercast.com same information, same prices, same benefits. Now on to today's podcast. I'm here with Richard Excel. He is currently a professor of finance at Geese College of Business at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Richard here, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor podcast today. I'm happy to be on here. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, great to have you. And you have some views here on the economy and specifically on inflation. And your view, and this is quoting from a recent piece that you guys, that you did a couple of weeks ago, I believe. And you said that despite everything that's happened here, inflation is still the only game in town. Why do you see this still as vital right now? Sure. So I guess I would look at this from a couple different angles. The first is that if we look at you know what is driving the markets this year, when I say the markets, I assume the risky markets. It's so let's just look at the equity market. So what is driving that this year? And you can you can look and see that the basically the entire movement of the market this year has come down to changes in multiples, whether you like PE or EBITDA, that's been the driver, right? Because earnings are, are relatively flat, give or take. Now, this I'm talking at the market level. Of course, idiosyncratically, that might be a little bit different, but I'm at the market level. And so and we look at it, it's multiples that, that are driving that. That's investor sentiment, essentially. So what, what's driving those multiples? Well, if you look at what's driving the multiples. And so I look at, for instance, the earnings yield of the SPX, which is the inverse of the forward PE. So I look at that. I, I always look at multiples on a forward basis because mm. we value equities on what's going to happen in the future. And that's what, not what has happened in the past. And the forward earnings yield and the expectation of rate hikes from the Fed in the next year um, are highly correlated. Which isn't surprising, right? Because ultimately, we we build up the, our valuation models for anything, including discount rates for equities, for initially from um, short term. You know, depending on which one you use, um, Treasury yields. You know, um, not not Fed funds per se, but of course, even a five year, ten year Treasury yield is just the sum of what the Fed funds is going to be over that period of time. And so, when we look at that, it's you know, the expectations of rate hikes are driving earnings yield. So they're driving the PE, which is driving the market. And so from that standpoint, I say, that's really all that matters right now. Mm. Now, the other thing I would add to that is that I, I, I normally, when I look at the world, my, my lens, my investment process, we look at growth and inflation. And so growth right now, I don't think there's that much difference of opinion on growth. I think most people understand that growth will be slowing. You can look at enough forward, forward indicators on housing markets, um, new orders, et cetera, to suggest that we think growth is going to slow. And, and so I don't think there's difference of opinion on that. I, I think this inflation is the game in town um, for the market right now. The, the other reason I say that is because if you look at the way many investor portfolios, investment portfolios are built, it's relying on the fact that stocks and bonds are negatively correlated. That could be the traditional 60-40 portfolio in a retail portfolio or risk parity, which has been all the rage for institutions, pension funds, et cetera. Um, and, and the key factor there is that stocks and bonds are negatively correlated so they could provide buffers for each other. Those That works very well, has worked very well this century when um, you know when inflation has been low and every, all we have to worry about is growth. Because if growth starts to fall, the expectation is that central banks will cut rates. So bonds rally, equities fall with the, the growth outlook. And so they're balanced. If growth is moving higher, equities are rallying, but bonds are selling off. And so there's that negative correlation. However, if we move into the world as we have in the last 18 months, a world of inflation and not transitory inflation, but stickier inflation, um, that the correlation becomes positive. And that's what we've seen really all of this year is that stocks and bonds are positively correlated. In fact, both assets had their worst start to the year, their worst first six months of the year in, in about 50 years, right? And so those portfolios that are built and relying on that negative correlation have been particularly hurt badly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's there's 
a lot of focus on inflation and how sticky inflation is because there might be some that are questioning how sustainably um, this this kind of in risk parity or 60-40 is on a forward-looking basis. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that more in a little bit, but let's turning back to inflation again. What are your views on inflation here for the rest of the year and into next year? So, you know, we build a number of different models with the students. And when we look at those models right now, we, we see inflation slowing for sure. We see inflation coming, coming, coming back lower. The problem is it's, it's not going to come back to the 2% Fed target anytime soon. Uh, I think even when we look at it um, throughout the, to the end of this year, um, it's still something on the order of um, the forecasts are you know, in the five to five and a half range by December. But by December of 2023, they start to have a two-handle again at that point, right? So when we look further and further out, um, you know, it really starts to kind of come down. So we do see this coming down, um, and and so we we. But the question is, as the Fed told us at the Jackson Hole meeting, if we looked back to last year, why the reason the Fed was so slow to react initially um, was because their models were telling them inflation was going to fall, and then it didn't fall, mm. and so now they fi- find that they have to catch up. So Jay Powell. Basic and, and subsequent speakers basically told us, like, I think even if their model, even if their models are telling them inflation is going to fall, they're still going to be aggressive. So I don't necessarily think that changes Fed policy, certainly not for the September meeting. I think somewhat this to me, that's baked in the cake at 75 basis points because they want to send the message. And the one of the reasons they want to send the message is I think it's important that central bankers you know, are looking for inflation expectations, right? And inflation expectations are a mindset. They're a mindset for consumer, they're a mindset for businesses. Um, and so just as much as the Fed or other central bankers want to fight against deflation when we're close to zero and, and, and use that kind of communication strategy to say, hey, we're, not, we're gonna make sure that, you know, what was the Jay Powell saying when we were at near deflation? He was saying, um, we're not even thinking about, thinking about, thinking about yeah, raising right, rate, yeah. or lowering, you know, raising rates again. Really telling consumers, don't worry, the capital is there. Well, what's the, what are they telling us now? We are going to keep raising rates and keep them high. And so inflation will come lower. So I think it's a communication strategy right now, but I think they have to back that up. They have credibility. And so that's where I look at, even though my models are telling me it's going to come down, the Fed still seems like it's going to be largely in play right now. Hmm. Can the Fed continue this tightening policy? And can we continue to see this well, slow down in growth, or slow down in inflation, let's go there, without cutting into growth and, and without starting a recession. Can we have a soft landing? Well, in theory, we can have a soft landing. In practice, mm-hmm. we've had some soft landings, right? Of the last 14 um, rate hike cycles, not counting this one, we've had three soft landings of those 14. So um, it can happen. It's not, it's not the base case by any stretch. Mm-hmm. And when the central banks are telling you that they're essentially going to go until they break something, I don't think that should necessarily be the expectation this time either. Okay. So you think there's a chance that the Fed does reverse course before they get to 2%? I, 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 well, I will tell you, I think that if it was domestic policy alone, um, the Fed would continue to, to move things higher. I think you have to, we also, has to also, we also have to appreciate that the, you know, the Fed is aware of what is going on in Europe. The Fed is aware of what's going on in Asia. Um, they don't make policy because of those things, of course, because the Fed only has a mandate on full employment and price stability in the United States. But they're also aware of the fact that these 
global slowdowns will have an effect on the U.S. economy. So I think there are clearly a part of the Fed that has, you know, is looking at these forward-looking models. However, I think near term, what we're going to see in in the next couple of meetings are that the Fed is still going to be to continue to be hawkish. Then there'll be, then, then you know, we might get to the point where we hold. And then we'll kind of wait and see. Mm. I think what the, the Fed was really pushing back against was the idea that they're going to hike through the end of this year and then have to you know quickly cut next year. Mm-hmm. Um, many of many of the Fed speakers have kind of told us that they're going to move rates higher quickly and then wait and see. Right. Um, and so I think they'll be equally as slow to remove um, the, the rate hikes. Um, next year, even in the sign of, of trouble. But I think we, that's something that, you know, when we look at yellow flags around the world, there's quite a, quite a few of them. Mm. Yeah, no question. Is there, is there a chance that the Fed overdoes it? Because you've had these pretty dramatic rate hikes here. I mean, we haven't seen this in, in I don't know, 40 years. Um, I don't think the 75 basis points. And now we're seeing two of them. And then more interest rate hikes for later in the year. And they, they they appear very much focused on bringing down inflation, which, as you said, is is part of their mandate. But is there a chance that they overdo it? That they, because these these rate hikes have maybe not worked their way through the economy yet fully. In housing, you're starting to see it, I guess. But elsewhere, you know, hiring is strong and and the consumer is strong. So, do you think there's a chance that they they kind of get a little impatient and jack things up too much, and then have a whole another mess of, of things to deal with? I think there's a I think there's a, a quite a good possibility of that. And then uh, to your point, you know, monetary policy acts with a lag. Yeah. The lag is about 12 months or so, give or take. And so that is the difficulty that they face is that they're making policy changes right now where they know there's a lag and they won't see the effects of that, you know, until summer of next year. And at that point, it might have gone too far. This space for rent. If you own a small corporation, have a service, or even a podcast of your own that you wish to advertise, you can use the Contrarian Investor Podcast for this purpose. I will happily read an ad and shout out a link to your service at this stage of this podcast. So if you are interested, get in touch, email contrarianpod at gmail.com and let me know what you would propose. Obviously, there are limits to the type of things that can be advertised, but rates are low. And there's other ways that this can be marketed as well, using our Twitter account and, of course, the show notes. This distribution is pretty deep. We'll be happy to share any details so get in touch, contrarianpod at gmail.com. I would say that you're absolutely right. You've seen, you know, you've seen some impact on housing on a cyclical basis. It's certainly coming off the boil, and you're certainly seeing in, in, in some parts of the country that's going to be even more pronounced. Whether or not we see a national house price decline, I'm I not personally thinking that that's going to happen because when I look at housing, you know, what mortgage rates are what they're some, some give or take around five and a half percent. You know, if we look at um, if we look at where mortgage rates were back in 2004, 5, 6, they were at 6.5%. So the, while this has been a very, very stark change, you know, up over 100% on a year-over-year basis, the absolute level of that is not something that is completely worrisome because the other component that goes into 
the housing market, not just mortgage rates, but maybe even a bigger driver is the employment conditions. You know, what, do people have jobs and are their wages going higher? Because even as we saw post the financial crisis, even if rates are are near zero, people aren't going to buy a house if they don't have a job. And if if people's wages are keeping up with inflation or keeping up with these changes in rates, even at higher rates, you can still afford a house. And so there's there's you know. That's where I've, I'm probably not as bearish on housing as as others might be. Um, so you are seeing some of that effect come through into that market. Um, you know, but, but but I think when we think of the stock market, we have to understand that the Fed doesn't care about multiples. The Fed cares about earnings. I told you before that you know this year um, it's been the multiples that's been the only game in town, if you will, um, and that's what's been driving performance. Earnings haven't earnings have been pretty flat um, this year. Um, and so the Fed is not, is going to keep going until earnings slow down materially. They don't care that the S&P forward multiple came down from 21 times to 16 times and back up to 18 times. They're, they're, that's not going to stop them. So if that's what's driving the market, that won't stop the Fed. If earnings go from being flat year over year to down 10 or 20%, that will get the Fed to take notice. Yes. What's your base case? What do you what do you see? What's your forecast for the end of this year and into into next for, I, I guess the Fed fund, the Fed rate, um, and employment and inflation. Well, I, I think certainly in the next two meetings we're going to get seventy five basis points. I, I'm At sure. both September, they meet I, in I October so. or November. Or November, December. yeah. Er, so it's September, early November. November. It's like yeah. Yeah, just after the election. Um, so I think I think you'll see that in in both of them. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think it's baked in the cake for sure in September and November. I think that's probably I'm probably a little bit more hawkish than others. My sense is that that's going. The goal of that is to try to get a little bit ahead of the curve, knowing that they can kind of reduce them later if they need to. Um, and but most most importantly, to kind of restore some credibility um, mm-hmm. for them. And I don't think that while I while my models and my gut tells me that we are going to see the economy starting to slow and earnings starting to slow. I don't think things will have broken by November of this year. I think things maybe if they are going to break, won't be until Q1 of next year because the employment picture is still pretty solid and people have money and maybe they're pulling back on some spending, but it's not falling off a cliff. And so I think there's enough things that can, you know, can carry through the economy to the end of the year. That's that the fed's going to stay in play. I think next year becomes a more difficult environment for taking risk. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And to your point, you know, the, 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 the interest rates were at zero as recently as March. So if we're talking about a 12 month lag, that puts us right at the end of Q1, 2023. And I would say to you that that when there was all the talk of the Fed pivot, my thought was that if there was going to be a pivot, and I um, that it would come by by changes in the quantitative tightening and not changes in the rate hikes, because the Fed has more flexibility on on how they how much and and how they execute the quantitative tightening, and it's easier for the Fed to back off the quantitative tightening and say that the the market conditions are such that they can't do as much as they thought while they can kind of continue on and, and hike rates and normalize rates and use this quantitative tightening um, or lack thereof as a way to kind of soften the approach. And so that's where I think if you look at those that look at like a shadow Fed funds rate that includes the impact of quantitative easing or quantitative tightening, um, you, you could see a pivot there. But I, I frankly didn't think that there'd be any slowdown in um, you know in, in the rate hiking. Mm-hmm. And, and not only... That not only are we not seeing a slowdown, we're actually seeing an acceleration, right? So to your point. 
Yeah. Interesting. So, so by the, by your estimation, then that would put us at 4% at year end, right? Am I doing the math right on that? Yeah. And, and that's kind of what, um, you know, a few speakers, uh, certainly uh, Fed Governor Mester kind of talked about as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. Correct. And then you think that they're going to keep it there for most of 23? I think they, they would love to keep it there for most of 23. Yeah. The question is, will they allow, you know, will, will the data allow them to? And so that's that's what we have to kind of watch for. Very interesting. Wow. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Very, thank you so much for that, Richard. Um, yeah, so no I want to take a, a quick break here and come back, ask you some more about yourself, talk a little bit more about markets. But first, we're going to take a, a break. If you are a premium subscriber, you do not get the break. Don't go anywhere. Don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com, whole bunch of benefits including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody, here with Richard Excel. Great last name, by the way, although you spell it with two L's, but that's okay. I came before the software, though. (laughs) Yeah, probably. But um, yeah, great to have you here. And this is the segment of the show where we ask our guest, about themselves and their personal and professional background. I know you have a long history as a trader uh, on the buy side and including at hedge funds. So I'm curious about that and how you came to investing in the first place and then how this all took you to where you are today. Sure. So, I mean, I got into the market when um, early after my freshman year of college, I had a chance to intern on the CBOE, on the Chicago Board Options Exchange. 
And I just fell in love with the idea of the, you know, trading derivatives. Um, it, it, to me, the, you know, the, the floors, which of course have closed now, mm. um, were the one place where you could, you know, it, it was a physical and a mental challenge all at the same time, right? You're having to calculate derivatives in your head while somebody's elbowing you and spitting on you, et cetera. I'm like, it was to me, that was, that was just to me an, an appealing environment because it's for smart people that, you know, and there's, but there's like competition and athleticism and it's just, it was fun and I just enjoyed it. And so I um, did that for a, a couple couple years of internships during um, during college. And, and then that's what I wanted to do right after, right after college. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. And I started in the business at a firm that's where I was interning was a firm called O'Connor and Associates, which was one of the top derivatives firms in the world. And I think a lot of people who are in the derivatives and options world know that brand. Um, O'Connor was bought by Swiss bank um, and, and Swiss bank was moving the O'Connor people to his offices all over the world. And so I was initially moved to Tokyo upon graduation, partly because I had a, a minor in Japanese studies. And so, and it was 1990 and Japan was at the top of the world, right? Mm. So I spent the better part of the 90s in Asia um, in on investment banking um, and on the sales and trading side. Mm. So started in foreign exchange, br- branched into precious metals as well, and then ultimately got into Asian emerging market FX and debt mm. um, and ended the ended that decade um, really focused on global prop trading. That was back, you know, before the financial crisis when investment banks were taking a lot of prop risk. Mm-hmm. I had managed to to navigate, you know, in that world that I was in, the European exchange rate meltdown, the tequila crisis, the Asian financial crisis, and then the Russian Brazil crisis, um, which of course led into the LTCM crisis. Mm. And so I was getting to like 1999, and I'm like what more could possibly happen in the world of FX, right? So it's time to maybe pivot. And I always wanted to kind of get into the world of equities. Equities, even though it's interesting, equities do not have the same sort of, I mean, they're not the biggest of all the markets. In fact, FX is the biggest market by mm-hmm. far, um, but they get all the headlines and they can, everyone talks about them. So, um, and with some of the people that I had actually met in that very first summer that I interned, um, they were starting a hedge fund uh, on, you know, underneath the UBS asset management brand called UBS O'Connor because they were all O'Connor um, original partners, et cetera. And so I moved into the world of hedge funds in 2001 mm-hmm. to do equity long short. Um, and then for the better part of the next 12 years, I was at UBS o- O'Connor doing a number of different things for equity long short for a while. And then I moved into back into kind of global macro. Um, then I got to spend some time in Europe doing um, running the entire office. So I got to look at all of our different strategies, moved back to finally the last couple of years I was there running our global equity long short business um, globally. And so um, responsible for, for all of the um, capital allocation, et cetera, in risk management. Wow. Um, I left the, in 2013 to start my own hedge fund that was um, quickly then kind of rolled into and merged with uh, Wolverine Asset Management. And okay. that's what I did um, until 2020 when I finally retired. Wow. Okay. And so now you have this uh, teaching uh, position over in out there in Illinois. Yeah. So it, in 2016, I, I re-engaged with uh, my university where I went, did my undergraduate work because um, my daughter had started school there. And it started with kind of speaking to a class and then um, we're doing some client projects where I was giving the students some research projects to work on for my firm. Um, and next thing I know, I, I was teaching a class and then I was teaching two classes. And by 2019, 2020, I was teaching four classes while I was still working. And so that was quite a bit. And so 
I decided that I had, could only do one or the other. And um, since I had gotten to the point of 30 years in the markets and really had enjoyed my run, I thought it was a good time to um, stop managing money um, professionally and focus all of my time on, on teaching. And so now I'm starting my third full year of teaching. Wow. Congratulations. That's really interesting. Thanks. Wow. So the question is, um, when it comes to asset allocation now, because we've, we mentioned at the top, we have a massive sell-off in equities the first half of the year, and also a massive blowout in bond yields, which to your point, rarely happens together at the same time. Where does that leave us other than you know maybe trading around a little bit and putting into risk as as the Fed fed on, fed off, or anything like that? But is there anything like for the long term that people could do for uh, asset allocation? So when when I think about asset allocation and, and through the process that I use, I look at growth and inflation, and I, I kind of define the world as as four different regimes, right? When when growth growth is either either rising or falling, and when inflation is either rising or falling, and so the best time to be an investor in equity markets is when growth is rising and inflation is falling. Mm. That's kind of like early stage recovery. Um, et cetera. And that, that's the, the when you get the best returns in the equity market. The second best are when growth and inflation are both moving higher. Um, that's that's the you know that's the second best, but that's actually commodities are, are the best asset class to be in at that point. Then you kind of move through the cycle and you're at the point where inflation has moved higher, enough higher that growth starts to slow down, but inflation is still rising. And that's what we've been in in the last, um, you know, at least, you know, maybe not now, but uh, certainly been in for, you know, for the better part of 2021 and in early 2022. And that's one where um, equities start to struggle because growth is falling and, and growth drives earnings. And so that starts to get people worried about equities, um, but commodities still do well. And that's ex- frankly, exactly what we've seen. Um, and then the final phase is when both growth and inflation are falling, which it looks like we could be going into here. At least that's what my forecast would be. And that's traditionally when um, very defensive sectors do well. That's when very defensive country indexes like the US or the UK or Switzerland also do well. And that's one where commodities really start to struggle. So I think the, when I look at it from, and that's one where bonds have historically been the best place to be. Um, now, I think in some ways the market is pricing in the expectation of that. The only place we don't see, um, you know, we, when we look at the traditional empirical results, the only place we don't see them pricing in that phase would be in the bond market. Now, there's, you know, there's a lot of different reasons one might think that. Um, one might suggest that, and what we kind of seen is that with the central bank activity in the markets, especially around COVID, price, you know, prices in the bond market had gotten pretty far dislocated from what models would suggest that they were. So maybe we have to work off some of that. Um, but again, you, to what we talked about earlier, you're also seeing some quantitative tightening come in or expectations of more quantitative tightening. So that might be not allowing the bonds to do what they have traditionally done at this phase. But we're certainly seeing in terms of the country positioning, the sector positioning, the other asset class positioning, that the market's pricing in this falling growth, falling inflation type of um, outcome to, you know, over the next three to six months. And so, you know, to me, if I look at the opportunity, you know, I might suggest that that maybe the bond market in that phase looks like it's the best place to look. But I also can appreciate where, um, you know, you like I said, you've got some uh, macro investor positioning long bonds, but you also got the central banks trying to unwind that. So that's 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 something that we have to kind of keep our eye on because 
we one thing we have to appreciate, I think, is that the microstructures of the market have kind of broken down a little bit in the sense that as we've moved away from active money and into passive money, and now we also have central bank players in there, um, the traditional relationships are, are, are can be difficult and, and, and it can be frustrating um, for active managers because you're you're not seeing that's the, the the same sort of mindset and models kind of dictating prices. Hmm. Yeah. Re- right. That's that's right. How, how? What do you think we uh, bottom out here on on the ten year yields? Um. You know, I think that to me three and a half is is about yeah. as as high as I would think it would go because even if we get Fed funds to four percent, um, that would be you know essentially fifty base points of inversion. And that would suggest that at four percent, we've probably gone a little bit too far and things might start to break. And that's mm-hmm. why I don't think you'll see ten year get you know much above three and a half. But hmm. again, I you know I have to be. I'm, you know, I spent time as a as a risk manager as well, so I have to be open to the idea that one investor positioning um, might cause an overshoot, and two, um, we're, if if the central banks are going to keep on on quantitative tightening, we have to be open to the idea that 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 can open up some uh, some further move as well. And so I think for me, I'm confident and comfortable in in the options market, so I like to express my views more with options to kind of embed that risk management. Sure. Okay, but it does sound like you think that it's, you're maybe a little more bullish on fixed income than than equities at, at this at this. Point. Yeah, that's completely fair to say mm-hmm. for sure. Interesting. How bad do you think things get in terms of the recession? Because one thing I've noticed, and I've lived through maybe three of them, is that they they're all they're never mild when you're going through them, right? Right. In fact, most of the time you're going you get this narrative that develops that it's the worst down worst downturn since the Great Depression. Yeah, I swear we heard that in the early '90s. Maybe not. Maybe I imagined it, but we certainly did in 2008, and yeah. I thought we did in early 2000 as well. But anyway, so how bad of a recession do you think? Well, are we going to get a recession? You said there's a chance we could have a soft landing, but yeah, what are your views on that? Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. I, I definitely think we'll get a recession. I think it will be more of what we call, I'd call a garden variety recession, which was kind of like what we saw in the, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying we didn't get that commentary in the 90s, but I, I think um, if we, you know, that right now would be a pretty tame recession relative to what we've seen this century. I think yeah. the problem is a lot of people that, you know, who've been in the market more than, I think I saw something on the order of like, you know, two thirds of professional fund managers right now came into the markets after the financial crisis. But let's just say that wow. that's maybe an extreme, oh, but God. most people's investment career have been colored by this century, right? And so the only downturns we know are a tech bubble bursting in the financial crisis and then a really sharp COVID bubble yeah. that got your uh, COVID depression, sorry, that it got hit in there. And th- those were pretty extreme events by, you know, kind of global standards. And so I think, um, I don't think we'll see anything like that. I don't think hmm. we'll, there's been some comparisons to 2008 because housing's coming down so much, but we don't have nearly the leverage in the system as we, as we did in 2008. Not, it's not even close. And and then that's not that's at the financial institutions, that's on the consumer balance sheets, it's not even on the corporate balance sheets. We just don't have that same leverage. The the leverage that is in the system, but it's all on sovereign balance sheets for the most part. Hmm. You know, we haven't been through a recession where where you know where, where the sovereigns are are, are that you know, are that levered. So hmm. we don't necessarily know, but my my base case would be, yes, we'll see a recession. No, it won't be that deep because I do think the jobs market will probably hold up better than we think. And I think that a lot of that has to do 
with um, labor force participation and the fact that we have had some levers. Um, I also don't think the housing will be as as stark, not only because of the, the lack of leverage, but I think we're seeing, while, while what we're seeing is a cyclical slowdown, the secular drivers to housing, um, which is that we have historically, if I, if I look at a long-term, long-term basis, um, we are undersupplied um, in housing, and we are starting to see more and more household formations, and that that is trending higher. And so, the combination of demand from household formations and a lack of long-run supply tells me that secularly, um, we we should be in a reasonably strong housing market for the next five years. Though I acknowledge over the next year, um, you know, we're coming off some cyclical excesses, and so mm-hmm. I don't think we'll see too sharp of a downturn in the housing market. And so I think that will, that housing always leads into recession and leads out of a recession. So I think that's what's taking us in um, on that slowdown. But I think if, if we seasonally bottom sometime in the spring buying, you know, buying season, um, you, you know, that's where you can start to say, well, we've had it, you know, we had a recession, but it won't be that bad. Mm-hmm. Last question is and going back to the global, uh, you're maybe putting on your global macro hat a little more here. Uh, how much of a concern are the, the, you know, you have a slowdown in China, obviously Europe in, in a lot of trouble. The U.S. consumer has kind of been able to support all that so far. But how much concern are those slowdowns? I mean, China is still very nebulous. Um, and yeah, Europe is in nothing in terms of like their consumer strength. So wh- where do you view that? Well, um, kind of working backwards. I mean, Europe, Europe is it's a very real problem, right? And I mean, the orders of magnitude more so than what we have here. And I, mm. you know, if if on average, if we look at the energy prices for American consumers, have gone up maybe fifty percent year over year, which is big, and, and mm. that that leaves a mark. It's something closer to five or six hundred percent for Europeans, right? Mm. And so it is orders of magnitude more difficult. And, and you're seeing that, you're seeing the effects of that. And, and so Europe is definitely in trouble. Um, I think it, the reason it's held up better than maybe some expected through the summer was be, probably because those American consumers were not, were not just buying here, but they were traveling to Europe. Yeah. Um, and, and it was it was three years worth of travel all in one summer. And that That's probably right. helped, you know kept Europe holding up there for a while. But I think you're going to start in the fall, you know, Q4 and Q1, I think that's where, the pain's going to really be felt, um, though. You know, you're seeing some some tough choices being made now on 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 how Europe wants to kind of continue. You know, consider its energy policy going forward. So, you know, we'll see what will come out on the other side of it. But I think Europe is definitely going to be a, a drag for sure. Um, China is China is is difficult, right? I mean, China is is in a crisis of its own making, um, and so you know, China. Will will decide when it wants to, this crisis to stop. I think. And um, now the question is: do, Will they lose control, et cetera? Um, you know, the n- number one mandate for the Chinese government is social stability. And so, when you start to see social instability, um, that that's where you, I think you'll have you'll start to sense some problems. And, and in some ways, you've already seen that, right? You've seen more protests in front of wealth management offices than you've seen before. You've seen runs on banks, um, et cetera. So, and, and in the last three weeks, we've started to see a number of small and incremental, but um, voluminous uh, stimulus measures, right? We've seen mm. probably 20 different stimulus measures of some um, some kind. It's not the shock and awe that you saw in 2008 because they don't want to reinflate the, mm. the housing more housing bubble that they had. Um, but you know, it's there's there, they recognize that housing is an incredibly important sector in their economy. I mentioned how housing leads the US into an out of recession. Housing is a much bigger deal, even in China, because mm-hmm. there's no social safety net. And so 
um, consumers in China that they have high savings rate, and then they and they tend to put those savings into second or third homes as a way to save for retirement and 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 help take care of of their other family members, et cetera. So the fact that you've had a housing crisis is is a pretty big deal in China, even bigger than it would have been here. Um, but you know, we'll start to see what happens, and I would expect even as we kind of go into this um, the autumn National Party of Congress when uh, President Xi Jinping is trying to get. Um, a relatively unprecedented third term, um, you know, I think you'll see China trying to step in and support things a little bit there. Mm. All right. And they can do that without generating all kinds of crazy inflation there. I mean, um, no, I mean, if the, they would definitely try to create some inflation, but I, or not try to, but they would get some inflation out of all of that. Um, but the, the thing about it is that, you know, what where we would normally see that release valve would be in the FX market, right? And that's mm-hmm. what you're seeing in in Europe is that there's trying to step in to help, and um, and then you're seeing the the sterling, the pound sterling, you're seeing the euro weakening. You're actually seeing that the, the Chinese renminbi uh, weaken. They're allowing it to weaken, but it's a managed float, so they can control how much it weakens. Mm-hmm. I think the, one of the things in in Asia we should watch is that it's a bit of an an, an FX war going on, right? Because Japan kind of said, "Hey, you guys have all this inflation. We'd love to have inflation. Mm-hmm. We've been trying to get inflation for 30 years, so we're going to keep our we're going to keep pegging the 10 year to 25 basis points and let our currency weaken because that will import inflation, and we'll be re- really happy to do that." And now China's allowing its currency to weaken because it wants to maintain some sort of competitiveness as well. So um, I think Asia will be importing the inflation that the U.S. and Europe don't want, um, and it'll be coming there. And that would be a different problem for them. I think there are there's China has a, probably a number of different issues to worry about. But also one thing to recognize is that they probably don't mind bringing in some inflation because the latest data we've gotten from the UN, UN and even from the Shanghai Academy of Sciences is that China's demographic picture is much more bleak than we thought it was. Mm. We knew the workforce was slowing, but it looks like it's going to be slowing much more rapidly than we thought before, which means that potential GDP is going to be falling, which means that we're, they're going to be in a period of secular disinflation, if not deflation. So starting from a higher point probably isn't seen as a, as a massive longer-term risk, only a near-term risk. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. All right. Rich Excel, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor podcast today. Maybe in closing, uh, you could tell our listeners where they can find out more about you. I know you're active on the Twitter, and I'll put that information in the show notes as well. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm trying to put, put um, content out there every day. Um, but for those who like a little bit more of my kind of long form thinking, um, I write a blog on Substack called Stay Vigilant. So stayvigilant.substack.com. Um, feel free to kind of come on there, uh, like and subscribe if if you enjoy what you see. And but most importantly, I love having dialogue and comments with the, the subscribers um, because to me that's how we all get smarter is by having mm-hmm. discussions about different things in the market because. Um, we don't all have all the answers. And so I always love having that kind of Socratic debate, um, even if it's in the comments or in direct messaging. So f- stop by, see what you think, and, uh, and, and, and either you know, subscribe if you like it or DM me if you don't. Very good. Very cool. Yeah, I'll, so I'll put those links in there. And with that, I thank you all for listening. Thanks again to Rich. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. 
send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.